Hello and welcome to another episode of the Art of Podcast. In this episode, I am joined by world-renowned investigative journalist John Sweeney. Now, before the episode starts, I should warn you that there is some naughty language in this episode, and that I do get a little bit starstruck interviewing John towards the back end of the interview. However, that shouldn't deter you from listening, and it is a good episode, so stay tuned and enjoy. Thank you for joining me, John. Uh, it's lovely to see you after uh, quite a long time trying to get this call sorted. Uh, can you just quickly give our listeners a rundown on who you are and what you are doing now? Um, well, my name is John Sweeney. I used to uh, work for The Observer, then the BBC, for uh, 18 years. Um, I left the BBC last October, and I'm now working on various, um, uh, various schemes and plots I sound like Baldrick, and it's kind of true. I'm um, I'm working on a uh, a podcast at the moment about the the, um, the murder, the killing of the great and brave Maltese journalist Daphne Caruana Galizia. Um, we, for a Hollywood company, where it's in development, but I'm plugging away at that and other things. And I'm um, I'm writing um, I'm writing a thriller um, set in Italy. Um, in the um, in the Second World War, and every now and then I, I get to a bit where I where the hero starts eating uh, Italian cheeses, and I and I start crying because it, it's so yummy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a, I'm, a, I'm and also I'm avoiding COVID uh, thus far successfully. Um, cheers, he says, <laughs> taking a glass of rosé, and. So if I, you've mentioned the coronavirus, obviously, can I ask how that's affected your work? I've seen you on Twitter doing the panic diaries uh, about the day's news. How has it affected your other stuff you're doing? Well, uh, essentially, it makes investigative journalists, uh, investigative journalism very, very difficult because every call you do now, you know, it's, we've almost given up on phones, everything's on Zoom. But all of this is eminently traceable and leakable by the bad guys or by big governments and so forth. And the idea of, of um, having a very a, a kind of anonymous style email exchange with somebody, then you exchange phone numbers, and then you say on the call, let's meet in a pub certain date, and that's all very anonymous. That's now difficult. Um, having said that, there is, some, there is a massive economy uh, in terms of you, you, you don't have to go anywhere to talk to people. Um, but um, I mean, my main problem as an investigative uh, journalist is that I used to work for the BBC and my challenge was getting stuff through the BBC's sausage machine, the jellyfish, as I like to call the management, didn't. It was very, very difficult and became more and more difficult to get big stories which I felt was worthwhile uh, telling the, the great British public who pay our wages, getting it through the machine was really, really difficult. However, there was a machine and I was paid to do that. Now I'm in a different place in that I have to pitch stories to people and they have to say yes. And the problem is that since there's been both the election, nobody wants investigative journalism uh, very much during an election because it's day-to-day -day news and then the virus and that slowed everything down and just very very recently there's been a bit more of a pickup and things are getting more lively but it's an incredibly difficult time to be um, a journalist because uh, what's happened and it's clear is that the the virus has accelerated a number of things one of which is the decline of newspapers um some people aren't buying newspapers because it's not necessary so the other thing is and i know it myself i've become much more technically adept at using internet things like zoom and so forth um and and that's a problem too so that there's a whole bunch of people who used to buy papers who probably won't do so after the virus uh, uh, has, has fizzled out fingers crossed um so journalism, you know, the things that used to fund journalism um, are in trouble. The old platforms, newspapers, uh, advertising for ITV, Channel 4, that's um, in serious trouble. And the BBC's in trouble because 
seeking a new director general, a new license fee settlement, and the government is, is fundamentally not very sympathetic to the BBC and what it does. So um, the all of the, if you look at the horizon, good old journalism, kind of stuff I've tried to do my whole life, it's, it's bleaker now um, than it's ever been um, in my life. That's true, absolutely true. It's the worst moment now, um, come and be a young journalist. So Sam, to be honest, you're a bit fucked. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate the honesty uh, more than anything there. Um, now, I want you to imagine we're going to step into a time machine. Uh, we're going to go back to sort of the start of your career and pre-BBC John Sweeney. Uh, can you tell us some of the fascinating stories you worked on at The Observer and before that? Well, I'd like to say, um, I'm about to be 62, I'd like to go back in time um, 40 years and say to the young John Sweeney, you twat. <laughs> but I was... So what happens is um, I want to be a lawyer. Um, um, we, I was, we lived between, um, when I was five and ten, we moved around a lot. Um, uh, my dad had left school at 14, was ambitious and clever, undereducated, and he went to night school and um, got lots and lots of qualifications as an engineer and uh, rose and rose through his company. Uh, and between five and ten, we lived in Manchester or south of Manchester in Cheshire. And then at the age of ten, we moved uh, to Hampshire. Um, and so I've got a, um, I've got a northern accent. Uh, I've got a slight northern accent, but I can also do posh. Uh, I'm schizophrenic. Hello, how are you? If I'm about to be arrested by a police officer, I go, hello, how are you? If I'm uh, in, um, doing a Brexit story, I go, fuck off, etc. Uh, anyway, so I'm um, um, 15, I want to be a lawyer, and I go to a, a, a Crown Court case in Winchester Crown Court, which we'd moved to Hampshire. Um, and, um, and it was awful because the defence barrister, and I wanted to be a defence barrister, ripped the character of the poor woman who was a witness against this guy, and he was accused of raping her. And basically the defence's job was to tear the character of this woman apart. And I thought, my God, I can't do this for a living. That's disgusting. And so I stopped wanting to be a lawyer. And then at the next uh, careers evening um, at my grammar school, uh, a guy came along from the Southern Evening Echo and he took the piss and he was funny. And he said, people think journalism's glamorous. Well, I'm going home and watching New, uh, Miss World on the telly just like everybody else. And, and, I, and there was something about his attitude which made you think that if there was a military coup, this guy wouldn't go along with it. And that I liked. And I thought, oh, that's good. I got a, I wrote, I was a good writer. I was good at English, good storyteller. In my family, the telling of a story is the, the point of life on earth. And, um, and, I uh, got a, became a kind of intern at The Economist at the age of 18. I shared an office with Andrew Neil, but it, there were no bylines. It was a bit boring. It was a bit snobby. And I wanted to be a proper reporter. And I fell out with them a bit because I'm like that. So I ended up um, getting a job on the Sheffield Telegraph. And um, I worked at the Sheffield Telegraph from when I was like 21 um, uh, or two in 1981. Uh, for four years and it was great um i was cocky and arrogant and up my bum and people um and people um the bosses didn't like me and i went to a journalism college for 12 weeks and i was stroppy and obnoxious <laughs> And, 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 I, and I, I failed the, the uh, I didn't fail the exam, but I got such a terrible report, they extended my probation. So all the other people I was on a course with, they all um, got a pay rise and was accepted by the paper. And I was held back on my uh, apprentice payment. And um, 
anyway, um, there's a friend of mine um, from LSE, where I went to university, was doing a PhD into the Hindu sense of time, and I went out to see him, and I got terrible diarrhea, and um, I ended up um, going to the mountains, the Himalayas, turned the corner, and there is the home in exile of the Dalai Lama. And uh, I told her lots of lies about the Sheffield Telegraph, uh, the paper I was working for. And eventually uh, I got an interview with His Holiness. He's a God King and he's good fun. He laughs like Sid James. And he stands up against Chinese, the tyranny of the Chinese Communist Party. He's a real hero to me, always has been, always will be. And anyway, I come back to Sheffield and I write a three double page spreads, uh, my interview with the God King. And um, a few days later, the news editor, who I thought hated me, um, put the phone down. This is long before mobile phones, right? So he puts the phone down and we all listen. And I'm hiding behind a pillar or something like this. And the Eric Barr, the news editor, says, there's been a murder in Barnsley. Where's the fucking Tibet correspondent? <laughs> <laughs> and I, and uh, I won an award, Yorkshire News Reporter of the Year, and um, it, was, it was great. And from then on, and that was the moment I realised I made it, and then I uh, was put on, on full pay as a, as a cub reporter. Uh, no longer uh, an apprentice and it was so exciting and this also was the moment when I realized and essentially I was was never our family was never posh but um, we were okay and for me as a grammar school boy went to university to see and meet ordinary working-class people in Sheffield and understand begin to understand the struggles they face uh, the lives they lead um, while the coal industry was being ripped to shreds by Mrs. Thatcher and also um, foolishly by Arthur Scargill, who didn't have a vote, I understood the, um, some of what was going on. So I had four great, wonderful years in Sheffield and then I moved down to, um, uh, to London and I, and I freelanced. I worked at the Times Diary, then Wapping happened. Then I didn't go because I thought it was wrong. Then I ended up um, um, freelancing and freelancing and freelancing in 80, uh, 89 I got a job on the Observer again wretchedly as a um, as a gossip columnist because people I could write funny things about posh people um, they're all twats frankly um, <laughs> but I, I I I had a gift for doing this and um, and they and anyway um, and I hated it I hated it with a passion but I couldn't get out of it and then um, in 80, um, December 89, um, the foreign um, all of the good people um, are in the south, of, uh, are in Panama doing the coup against Noriega, and Ceausescu is falling, and they need somebody to go to Timisoara, and the foreign editor points at me and says, Peter, go to Timisoara, go there now, go to Heathrow, whatever, go there now. And I, uh, and I get to Timisoara, uh, I fly, I get there, and then I pick up the phone and I dial London. Actually, I can't do it from Romania. I have to go to Yugoslavia. I have to change country to make a phone call because there's no calls out. And I go to Yugoslavia and I phone up and I say, by the way, my name's John. <laughs> <laughs> and that was how my career in national newspapers, my, my, my job, uh, my uh, career as a, a salaried writer and it was great fun and the observer there were uh, um, but things were dying and so a constant in my career has been that wherever I've landed up um, I have helped kill or um, damage uh, whichever newspaper news organization I've ever been on so the Sheffield Telegraph the observer the BBC each and every one of uh, um, uh, our uh, more wretched than when I joined them, and I'm very sorry for my uh, my behaviour. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose um, now that we've been through all that and we've sort of fixed where your career started and how you made a name for yourself, we should talk about some of the big moments you had at the BBC. I have a couple written down that I'd like to sort of go through. Um, 
I read about your work in Zimbabwe when Robert Mugabe had the ban on the BBC and you hid in a car boot so that you could still get the story and go around the country. Can you just talk us through how scary that must have been? So uh, the thing is, Sam, is that um, um, when somebody like Robert Mugabe says no BBC people can come uh, into the country, somebody like me goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, let's see, shall we? We went, uh, we, were, we went in kind of legally who we were. And um, we were arrested at the airport and then uh, they took our passports. And then the next day, the goons turn up uh, at our hotel. I'd, um, foolishly, I hadn't planned the trip properly and I had a, a ton of dirty washing in my bag. And I put all of my uh, dirty laundry in the hotel uh, the, the night we arrived. Bear with me. And um, anyway, so, um, then uh, at the hotel, the, the uh, secret police, Mugabe secret police turn up and they threaten us with anal rape, taking us to the prison and we will be suffer anal rape. And I turned to my friend, the producer, Simon Fitch, and I said, well, boss, what do we do now? And Simon goes, that's the first time you've ever called me boss. <laughs> 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 anyway, so... Um, uh, they kick us out, um, and um, James Miller, my uh, late friend James Miller, he was he was shot dead by the Israeli Defence Force in Gaza in 2003. This is 2001. We're in Sim. He's got a secret camera, and basically uh, they, the secret police are taking us through. We're being kicked out of the country. They take us to the airport. There's a metal detector. James affects to have diarrhoea. Hurries to the loo. Takes. Un, un, unbags the secret camera and puts in various bits of plastic bags and then puts it through the thing. And all the time, by the way, on the, on the bus, he's making me do pieces to cameras to, into his bag in which I go, so we're being evicted from Robert Mugabe's dictatorship. This is democracy, Zimbabwe style. And then James goes, go again, go again. Anyway, and I, I see the, the uh, metal detector go, ha! And what he does is he he feigns diarrhea, uh, unpacks it, gets through, packs it again, and then he's filming me with his bag when there's an announcement, um, which is, will Mr. John Sweeney please go to security? And I have no idea what's happening, and I think this is the end of me. I think I'm in, um, I'm in trouble. And it's my underpants from the hotel which the lovely people in the hotel have cleaned beautifully with a little card saying, please, uh, Mrs. Sweeney, come back to Zimbabwe in happier times. Because you, you knew, you knew there were good people in Zimbabwe who wanted their story told. And so we worked out a way. I think they kicked us out and I came back in again. Uh, we pretended <coughs> to be bird watchers and we had camera equipment, but that was for the birds. And we had a, a ton of books uh, about bird life in um, uh, Southern Africa. Is that a yellow-billed oxpecker I see before me? Uh, and all of that stuff. And, we, and, and this bullshit, it works. A thousand miles um, we traveled, I think 500 miles to one end of Zimbabwe and back again, documenting the human rights re, uh, abuses of Mugabe's regime. And I wanted to go and interview the leader of the opposition, who himself was always under trouble and under... Uh, he had a compound. His compound was safe, but it was watched by the secret police. So if I drove into that place, then I could get nicked. And remember, I was in the country illegally. We'd crept through the border. We hadn't actually stamped our passports. So the way to do that journey, and only that journey, was to hide in the boot of the car. And frankly, when I used to, when I was a lad, we used to go on pub crawls. This is in the 70s. People were badly behaved. And there was never enough room in the car. And I would volunteer to go in the boot of the car. And, and people would lower me pints of Guinness and I would drink them and put them up. It was my trick. So, so I used to do this as a lad. 
So it wasn't that difficult for me to do it. But we got into the compound, the compound gates shut. And there's Morgan Shangarai, the, uh, the late um, leader of the opposition. He was a good and brave man. And the producer said, I'd like you to introduce me to our reporter. And he opens the boot. And I popped up and I said, hello, I'm from the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> now, it was cheesy and it was, it was a bit of a stunt, but we hit the six o'clock news and it was a story. And then people watched the rest of our story, watched our film. And what they saw was Mugabe's abuse of human rights against black Zimbabweans. And so I've always, always thought, and this is, uh, if I'm here to give advice, um, which, I'm, uh, which everybody listening should, of course, uh, discount, but essentially it's right and proper uh, to tell um, powerful stories. And the best stories are those that powerful people do not want told. But if you can make them entertaining too, then more people will watch. You get more bums on seats. And then those people can, can also see the other thing that you're trying to get at. So it's good to be right and proper and true. But if you're entertaining with it, that's better because you get the message spread out to more people. Next uh the next one is probably the most famous uh outburst is with the scientology um obviously it's the most viewed clip of your work um i know you don't regret uh doing it but what what's it like working a story around the scientologists well sam before i start uh, you're wearing black um <laughs> are you a member of the church no, I'm not. <laughs> I've got to make sure, haven't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks for that. Um, yes, so it was... So you, what you've got to remember is I'm just the pretty face, or rather I'm not the pretty face, I'm the ugly face of, a, of, of an enormous machine behind me. It's actually not an enormous machine at the front line, which is always the case. Um, but I had a brilliant producer, Sarah Mole, and a brilliant... Uh, Northern Irish cameraman Bill uh, Bill Brown, and the the, um, the two of them took the piss out of me the whole time, and they were very very funny. And one of the strange things that happened was that um, there were two Scientologists were on a case, Tommy Davis and this other guy Mike Rinder, and Rinder had been in some weird Scientology dungeon of the mind, and they'd released him to deal with me and us. And he noted and was astonished by the fact that Bill and Sarah off camera would always take the piss out of me. And I would laugh and we would all laugh together. And we were a happy team. And eventually, um, Mike Rinder defected to us. And that's something I'm very, very proud of. But Sarah's, Sarah's from Essex. Um, um, and, um, and she talks like this. Yeah. Um, Sweeney, um, you've seen Jurassic Park, ain't ya? I said, yes, Sarah, I've seen Jurassic Park. You've seen that bit where there's a tethered goat, and the tethered goat, he gets, he gets got at by the, um, by the T-Rex. Well then, you're, you're the tethered goat, John. You can bleat, can't ya? Meh, meh, meh. And that was my job. So Sarah had worked it out that essentially what she would do was I would be the tethered goat and they would film me the whole time. And then sure enough, stomp, 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 along comes the T-Rex of the Church of Scientology and they would monster me. And Sarah got it exactly right. And so long as we never missed a trick and when I had two radio mics on me at any time in case one battery went down, Sarah had a, a small camera and then Bill had his big camera in case his batteries went down. So we never missed a single moment. It was a brilliantly clever judo play against the Church of Scientology's mindfuck against us. Um, and, um, and the problem is, on the seventh day of it, and remember, if you see the film, it's up on um, YouTube, it's called Scientology and Me. There's a clip of 40 seconds of me losing it completely and utterly. 
there is the film Scientology and me and I've written a book about it which no big publisher would publish but um, we published the book it sold 25,000 copies it's called Church of Fear and uh, it's available on Amazon and it tells you the story behind the story but essentially um, um, I said to Sarah one day the seventh day and that we were they came to our hotel at midnight they told horrible lies and threatened the people we ex-members of the Church of Scientology. There was a car chase in LA. There were creepy private eyes coming up to our hotel, our hotel and the garage. All of this stuff, it was pressure, 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 pressure. And then when you met with Scientologists, including people who had been stars, they would go on and on and on at you. And you, you felt as though, I felt as though I was losing my mind. And on the seventh day, I said to Sarah, Sarah, I can't do this anymore. I, it's really getting to me. And she said, in, the, in, a, in a very, very, you know, uh, careful and thoughtful way, shut up and get on with your job. And <laughs> so it's Sarah Moe's fault. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. It is not. It is my fault. And, and I'm sorry I lost my temper. I genuinely am sorry I lost my temper because people in the public eye are, um, should retain civility because civility is the engine oil of democracy this is something donald trump does not understand but uh, anyway i lost my temper and and i felt wretched um and we uh, we had a break and uh, bill is from northern ireland and i'm going to do a bad northern irish, northern irish accent please no one shoot me he says um well john i'm just gonna tell you that i'm uh, i'm leaving the bbc Sorry. <laughs> and I'm joining the Church of Scientology. And I went, no, fuck. And I said, no, John, I'm just pretending the piss. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then uh, we made the film, we edited it, and then Scientology put out the, the attack video, the 41 seconds of me losing it. My son, um, I've got two kids, son and daughter, but my son's on a... He's a fitness guy, he's whatever he is. Um, 13 years ago, he's 14, maybe 15. And um, he's, um, he's on a treadmill with a friend at the gym. And his friend says, look at that nutter. Uh, and <laughs> son looks up and says, that's my dad. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry to my family as well. However, um, we are monstered, monstered, monstered. And then um, five million people watched the film because, um, because of Scientology's attack on me. What's, what's the BBC guy got to say for himself? What happened? And it is um, the public reaction from being hammered for free. It came out on Saturday. I was hammered, hammered, hammered. And then um, that's the Scientology's attack on me. And then it was only Monday, um, at whatever it was, 8.30, 9 o'clock, that we managed to put our film out. So there's a great big time gap. And I am clobbered um, across the planet in that time. And then people start um, being nice about me. And this is another piece of advice. Occasionally you make a mistake in life. If you, so long as you're true to yourself, and um, your, the mistake isn't too horrible or too terrible. You can get through this. And how you deal with your mistake is more important than, than anything else. And remaining decent and remaining good is the thing anyway. There were, this is before Twitter, 2007, but there were hundreds and hundreds and then thousands of emails. My two favourites was one, uh, Scientology hates psychiatry. Uh, Mr. Sweeney, um, um, uh, you're my hero, but then I am the vice president of the Royal College of Psychiatry. That was one. And then another one was um, from the Greenwatch of the um, Lambeth River Fire Brigade. Mr. Sweeney will watch it, uh, the show with, with, with you, and I'm going to swear can believe this and he said um and frankly we all thought you should have punched that cunt <laughs> and it was it was I, I so from that that point onwards every now and then i get in a cab 
or I'm in a bar um, or a pub, um, people come up to me and say, you're, you're, you know, and, and they shake my hand, can I buy you a drink? So I'd like to, uh, and then a couple of years later, I got arrested by the um, uh, Pakistani secret police um, in Pakistan. We were filming something they didn't like. And um, uh, they said, who are you? And can you prove it? And I gave them my, my press pass and my passport. And um, I said, um, and the, the, the main goon gave it to one of his mates who got into a car and drove off. There's still four or five of them. It was me, uh, my local fixer, my local cameraman. The producer was in the hotel. That's producers always in the hotel. And the guy turns to me again. He says, who are you? And can you prove it? And I say, I'm John Sweeney and I work for BBC Panorama. And I have 7 million hits on YouTube. Look me up. <laughs> and the guy, the guy went away. And then he came back with my passport and press pass and said, I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to thank the Church of Scientology for making me internationally famous. Um, I suppose you won't be thanking... Um the secret police in Russia. Uh, the next one is when you doorstopped Putin, you made a film in Russia uh, around 2014. Um, obviously, you got your question in with Putin, but the rest of the film, there's you being sort of hounded out, people spying on you the entire time. So what was there much different between the Scientologists doing that and the Russian uh, secret police doing it, or was it pretty similar? Russia's scary. Um, Scientology is scary, but they've um, I've got a ton of money and they're afraid of legal action. So they threaten. And they were much more psycho in 2007 when we made that film than they are now. And they're, they're locked in. They've got a ton of money and you've got to be careful with them. But Russia's different. I interviewed three separate people over the years. Um, Anapolitan Tivskaya, Natasha Estomarova, and Boris Nemtsov. All three said that Putin was an enemy of democracy, and all three have ended up being shot. So now I'm different because I'm based in London, and therefore if I only go to Russia once every um, two years or so, do something and then get out again, then the Russians aren't going to come here and knock me off think but um, um, but you're careful at the same time I did Russian at school um, I love Russian literature I love Russia I love Russian culture I'm a massive Russophile but um, I also feel um, that Vladimir Putin is a real and present danger to our way of life to Western civilization to democracy to free speech to the rule of law I don't like it that too far too many um, people in power have um, cozied up to two um, frontmen for the Russian bear. For example, Boris Johnson, our prime minister, is a close friend of um, Yevgeny Lebedev, um, who is the owner of the Standard and the Independent. And his dad, Alexander Lebedev, was a colonel in the KGB. There's the clue right there. So um, anyway, um, we went to, we did this film in 2014 about, about the war in Ukraine, Russia's effective invasion of Ukraine, and the shooting down of MH17 by um, separatists who were fundamentally backed by and supplied by the Russian state. And the shooting down of that plane, MH17, 298 people died. And I, I'd just been uh, in a previous attempt, BBC management, I call them the jellyfish, had um, made uh, the London-based panorama reporters redundant. There were four of us and I was one of them. And I'd been made redundant. And then in the afternoon, the story of the shooting down the plane goes. And the plan was for people like Fiona Bruce, 
to present panorama um, or report panoramas, but she was um, doing antiques roadshow from Devizes and couldn't go to the crash site in eastern Ukraine that weekend, and I could. And so I took, but the news of my um, um, forced redundancy um, hit the papers. So I rocked up and everybody said, well, aren't you redundant? <laughs> like, and I said, well, not quite. So anyway, I'm doing the story. And honestly, Sam, it was so fucking grim. So the thing that upsets me, the thing that makes me cry is that there was, you know, there was engines from the plane and there's a tail fin and, and then the, the um, chunk of the fuselage and there was weird bits of shrapnel. This is where what happens is the rocket surface to a missile the rocket flies next to the plane and it explodes and it fires shrapnel into the plane and that causes the plane um, using its kinetic energy it's moving at 500 miles an hour through the sky to blow itself to pieces all the people die um and down on the ground there are books and sunglasses and the thing that gets me is those you know little um um, kiddie um, trolleys on a little suitcase with wheels and um, there were those in this cornfield um, so sad so we found two witnesses who said that the the rocket launcher was escorted by a Russian officer with a Moscow accent not local not from Ukraine or from southern Russia a Moscow accent. This effectively was a Russian missile, and Bellingcat brilliantly has stood this uh, line of inquiry up. So, how do we get to doorstep Vladimir Putin? Um, Nick Sturdy, brilliant producer, brilliant Russian speaker, says that Putin is opening a mammoth museum. I'm talking about the woolly elephants, yeah? Um, he's opening a mammoth museum in Yakutsk. Well, let's go there and doorstep him and um, off we go. Um, that weekend my niece is marrying her bloke Tim and I go to the wedding and it's one of those stupid weddings where you finish at 12 o'clock you then drive get in a bus and drive somewhere else it's crazy. Uh, anyway I'm somewhere in Hertfordshire and at three o'clock in the morning after a um, half an hour sleep I get to I have to get up to get a taxi to Gatwick and then I fly to Moscow and then I cross Moscow and then I fly um, another endless flight to Yakutsk, which is nine time zones east of London. It's so far east in Siberia, it's further east than Beijing and I have a dodgy kebab when I get to Yakutsk because I'm hungry and I start feeling as though I'm going to throw up and I'm still pissed from the wedding. And I'm um, on my cover. Well, the Kremlin tell Nick not to that we can't that we can't say anything to Putin. Nick, for some reason, forgets to point this out. And I look, frankly, um, I've got my wedding suit on. I look like a professor of mammothology. Uh, I've got a beard and glasses. I look like somebody who knows about prehistoric woolly mammoths and all my and there's lots of other people uh, professors um who all of whom are shaking with fear and putin rolls up the steps but i'm running the film of of, of the crash site of mh17 in my head and i want to ask this man a question so i jump in front of everybody else shake him by the hand and say tell me about the killings in ukraine tell me about the killings of the the dutch the australians the british tell me about MH17. And, put, and all of the Kremlin's TV crews lights have switched on because they have, they thought it was all pre-planned. And, um, and then I, um, and Putin answers my question. He gives a very formulaic answer, typical him, but nevertheless, he has to engage. Uh, and so we doorstepped him and then he's staring at me and I start thinking, oh fuck, I'm going to throw up over this guy because my I can feel this kebab coming back at me. And, and I think if I blink for a second, 
I'm going to project our vomit over Vladimir Putin. Now, the Ukrainians are like this, but like the CIA might like this. But actually, it will be not good for me. It really won't be good for me. I'm the man who vomited over Vladimir Putin. And so I don't blink. And he looks away first. And about that, I feel quite proud. After uh, this exchange, we're taken down into a basement. The point of the basement is our mobile phones don't work. So the entire BBC Christmas tree, what's Sweeney done now? Oh, my God, he's been rude to Vladimir Putin. Stop it, stop it. I got the emails later that that's true. There's, there's a lot of anxiety about me doorstepping Vladimir Putin. However, none of this uh, is relayed to us because we're, we're in a basement and the door was locked. There was coffee and croissant. Things have improved since uh, Silence Day. The door was locked. We couldn't get out. There was a big man on the other side of the door. Things are more the same. So when people like Boris Johnson cozy up to people like Yevgeny Lebedev, I worry. I worry that it's not a good thing. I want the Russia report to be published. I worry about that. It's a big thing. I've written a thriller called The Useful Idiots on Amazon. Um, and it's about fake news in, um, in 1933 when uh, Stalin's famine, which the Ukrainians call the Holodomor, was raging. And the, the Western press corps in Moscow did its best to hide the truth about this. And one, somebody reviewed it and said, this isn't actually a work of, it's not historical fiction, it's historical futurism, because what was true of the lies under Stalin is also, be, feels like it's becoming true now uh, on the lies under Putin and Trump. Yeah, and I think that's um, a good place to move into the next uh, big moment you had, which was North Korea. Um, you went undercover and reported on the situation there, but not the, the one that they show to the people through their um, government television program, but the actual reality. Um, what's it like turning up and shining a light on what's actually going on? I loved it. There were no emails. No bosses could call me. Um, it was great. Uh, <laughs> it was no. It was it was strange. So I, uh, we got some flack. I think unfairly. Um, you can uh, people can uh, make up their own minds. Again, I've written a book about this. It's called North Korea Undercover. Um, and again, it's available near the uh, the large river in South America. Um, but essentially. Uh, North Korea is an evil state. Um, people reckon, Human Rights Watch um, reckon there's about 100,000 people held in a gulag. It's a hideous, feudal, worse than feudal, it's a horrible totalitarian state. And um, it was scary, but also exciting to, to, to try and get in there and my cover and I'm going to take a drink uh, here of the of my rose was that I was a dodgy academic a professor again uh, this time I, I pre pretended to be a professor of history but I I drank comically and um, at one moment the, the North Koreans got this hideous thing which they take clams and then they cook them with a petrol or kerosene and you get them flambéed and uh, I had one I always as a kind of rule I'll always eat what people give me just for fun and it was ab absolutely the most disgusting thing it was like kind of crustacean flambéed and fucking petrol it was disgusting and Mr. Zhu the uh, the minder had a um uh um a, a kind of big beaker of the local firewater in his hand and, and I just grabbed it and I downed the whole thing, um, which he gave me, it was for me. Uh, I downed the whole thing. I know, because oh, it, was, it, was, it was like their version of vodka or pachin. And uh, he looked at me and he said, ah, professor of drinking. <laughs> and, and, and what was great was from then on, that was my cover. 
And so I, and, and I have a trick, which is I can appear to be very drunk. And I am very drunk, but part of me is still in control of myself. So that I can, um, uh, so I carried on uh, pretending to be um, a, a dodgy academic with an alcohol problem. And every now and then, um, one of the students was in fact a BBC, a freelance BBC cameraman. And he would, um, he, he had his, uh, what looked like a, a normal big camera, stills camera, but in fact was shooting video. And then I'd do, I'd have four seconds to do a piece to camera. There's nobody, we can't see any patients in the hospital. Or, um, this is weird. And, and that's all. And then I went back to playing drunk. And so as a kind of intelligence exercise of, of trying to tell the truth about this awful totalitarian state, um, it was a great challenge. And, and, um, and I think we lived up to the challenge. Now the, as I said, we got some flack, I think unfairly. So one of the people, one of the students complained uh, about what happened, but she, she's 28, she's a grown woman. She took um, us to the fence. There's a moment when I go to a barbed wire fence and on the other side of the fence is um, a poor, a dirt poor North Korean town. And I say, welcome to the real North Korea. She took us there very early in the morning because we hadn't found that place. And then towards the end of the trip, I think she switched um, and became friends with one of the North Korean minders. And minders are interesting in North Korea because they are guides, but they work for a secret police state. So they are either secret police officers or agents. And so that's one of the things you, you wrestle with. But I do apologize for losing my temper with the Church of Scientology. I don't apologize for what we did to get into North Korea. I don't think we did wrong. And I would, at one point, I want to live long enough so that I can um, um, interview um, the people inside the North Korean gulag once they're freed, once the regime falls. I really want to see that happen. It's a stinking regime. And another reason I don't like Donald Trump is that he kind of gets on, he kind of likes Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un is a totalitarian leader. He's a, he's, a, he's a stain on the face of humanity. And for, the, for Donald Trump to, to befriend him in the way he does is, uh, seems to me very, very, very wrong. Yeah, it's, it's um, interesting you mentioned that you don't apologise for how you got into North Korea because actually one of the first things I did at university was a profile about um, your journalism and I actually wrote about in defence of how you got in there because I was obviously starting off at university, getting into journalism, so I was really fired up about defending what journalists do to make sure they can get the story. And... It's just interesting that when I was researching into it, that there was so much backlash when it helped turn a light on something which we hadn't seen yet. You know, nobody had showed us. Well, what happened was that we got clobbered and it took a long time to make the film. Um, and then when the film came out, um, the, there was an awful lot of support because people saw what we, what we did. So that it was a, um, it, it, it's trying to make a film uh, in the modern age, but there, there was, um, it was damaging. Personally, there was a difference in that the, the um, Scientology, I lost my rag on uh, when the director general was Mark Thompson. He was a big beast and he defended us to the hilt. And North Korea happened, I think, on the, the second day, the row broke on the second day of Tony Hall's, uh, on Tony Hall's watch. And he is a, I don't admire him as a man. He's a decent man, he's a nice man, but he isn't right to be Director General of the BBC, in my view. And he was very, very wary 
or rather he was, he didn't stand up for us he backed away now one of the things that informs me about this is the LSE had to go at me too but the LSE got into trouble because it it ended up taking money from Gaddafi when I was at the LSE 77 to 80 my director was Ralph Darendorf who is long since dead but he um as a teenager he ended up um, his dad was a Social Democrat MP, and he ended up in a German concentration camp for a time. They released him, he got out, he survived. But Ralph Darendorf, I always thought, would not have condemned a BBC reporter for telling the truth about North Korea, about a concentration camp country. Um, and so I, I, I feel pretty confident that um, we did the right thing. Some of the time, good journalism requires that you don't have the best table manners. Gustav Flaubert said this, and I like it, um, when fighting for truth and justice, it's never a good idea to wear one's best trousers. It's, it's very accurate, very good. I suppose the people of America today and the last week won't have been wearing their best trousers. Um, I want to move us on now to what you think is next for journalism. Um, what, what will the next year or two see? Um, obviously, I don't want to bring up the riots that are going on in America too much, but we're seeing the police attack the media and the journalists. And for me, that's incredibly demoralizing because they're the last people that should ever you know, when they're there trying to help tell the story, the last thing you should do is be attacking them. Yes, Sam, no, I, you're right. I felt, I have felt incredibly depressed these last few days. And I felt afraid. Um, I, Hitler um, talked about Lugenpresse, German for the lying press. Mussolini said, um, if necessary, with force. And Trump, Trump has been saying in his tweets and his speeches tropes similar to that. Now, it's a big thing to compare Donald Trump to um, the fascist Axis leaders of the 20th century. Uh, the masters of the load of the 1930s, the low dishonest decade, as W.H. Um, Auden called it. But I think Trump's there. I think it's desperate. I think the, I, I mean, the, the video of, uh, of uh, there's two or three videos. There's, um, there's one uh, which I saw this morning of an Australian team being smacked. There's a freelance um, cameraman working for the BBC and the guy, um, a guy, a police guy with a riot shield attacks him head on in Washington, D.C. And the British government and the BBC jellyfish should, should complain to the uh, American government about the behavior of their police force. It's just unacceptable and wrong. And it, it's very scary. But also the other thing, Sam, is that... Um, Let's not stop what we're trying to do. If so long as I have um, breath in my body, I will stand up for, believe in, and try and practice journalism that tells truth to power. And so I hope for you and people like you and your friends and the other people who have been listening to this podcast, because journalism is a, the great defense against tyranny against abuses of power, against cruelty, and against stupidity. It's what we do. So it is both, so the problem for young journalists like you, Sam, is that this is the worst time to be a journalist because there's no money. It's bloody scary, and the odds are against you. On the other hand, it's never been more necessary in my lifetime, in my lifetime. And um, I also feel 
apparently like in the 1930s, the BBC wouldn't let anybody um, um, go to the Spanish Civil War, lest it cause trouble with the Foreign Office, lest it cause trouble with Mussolini or Hitler. Oh, for fuck's sake, you know, come on, come on. Um, I want the BBC to be braver and better than it is. Um, obviously, everybody knows what happened, uh, that I was trying to do a film about Tommy Robinson. And um, Tommy Robinson, one of his supporters who had fallen out with him, she told me absolutely convincingly, as far as I was concerned, that um, some of his supporters threatened her with an acid facial, with rape with a barbed wire glove. What I didn't realize was she, she was secretly filming me. And, and that for the BB, anyway, uh, and then I, I drunk too much. I was talking uh, a bit of rubbish, nothing terrible, my view. I think the BBC should have stuck with me, but Tony Hall doesn't, doesn't like me, doesn't like the kind of stuff I do. So that was, that felt grim and bewildering. But, you know, I wake up in the morning and I want to tell truth to power. Um, and so should you. It's a good thing, journalism. It's not a crime. It's a noble thing. At the moment, it doesn't pay. You might get thumped. It's still worth doing. Carry on. Yeah, that's, um, that's some of the, the best words I've heard so far for anyone um, looking to go into journalism for why you should. Do you have one or two golden rules that we can all take away? Um, by the way, everybody, I've paid um, Sam a fiver for him to be quite so nice about me. Um, but, uh, <laughs> oh, hold on a second. That's not true. I haven't got a fiver. So never do anything um, that you feel is wrong, that, that is shameful. Be true to yourself. Um, express or think about your feelings and try and articulate them without them leading you. I actually do believe in BBC due impartiality. I, it, it's hard because some of the judgments are very, very fine. But I do believe very much that if you're rude about somebody, if you're challenging somebody, then it's fair and proper that you should give them an opportunity to defend themselves. Uh, that's a rule. So um, if you're saying you, sir, are a scumbag, then you've got to give them a fair opportunity to defend themselves. That's absolutely fair and absolutely proper. But always difficult sometimes because people with power can get back to your sources and then somehow unpick your story um, or make it more difficult for the people who are supplying you with information. But nevertheless, that's a simple rule to be fair and honest and to tell the truth. Um, I feel all of that so. Also to have fun. Um, when I was, uh, when I used to go to the war zones for the Observer and the bit for the BBC, I kind of had a rule that the more jokes we cracked in the car doing something scary, the better. Because when you're joking, when you're mucking around, if somebody's pissing you off or there's somebody's holding back on something or there's some difficulty between you and another person. If you're in a, a happy environment or a jokey environment, you can let, you can express that. Whereas if, if everything's daggers drawn, it doesn't work. And so it's a, so a simple piece of advice um, in a hostile environment. And by the way, you know, God knows, there are riots in America. Uh, I worry, I worry very much that the riots will move across the continent, uh, uh, the Atlantic. We may well have a troubled summer here. I think it more likely than not. So you, lots of your friends could end up in difficult situations. It's always good to, um, to have banter, to muck about and to be friendly and tell jokes because you can, you can get a better register of what's going on. Look after yourselves, look after your friends, tell the truth, tell truth to power. That's it. 
They are some of the, as I say, the best things I've heard. Um, as a budding journalist, it's been amazing to speak to you and to learn so much about your career and what you've got to say. So I'd really like to thank you for joining me. Can you tell us quickly um, where we can find your work right now, where we can find you on social media to see some of your thoughts and everything else? Sure. Uh, I I, um, I dribble on on Twitter um, at John Sweeney Raw, spelt R O A R, John Sweeney Raw. Um, my books are available on Amazon. You go to John Sweeney. Uh, I've got a website which I I don't use much, but it's called JohnSweeney.co.uk. Um, my latest thriller, The Useful Idiot, about fake news under Stalin. Uh, the books I talked about today are. Um, Church of Fear, a book about Scientology, and North Korea Undercover, a book about North Korea. And I've written another novel, which is sold the most, called Elephant Moon, which is a thriller set in Burma in 1942-1943. So um, thanks for your time, Sam. I've enjoyed this. Yes, thank you. Speak to you soon, hopefully. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Art of Podcast. Thank you very much to John for donating his time and giving us all such a wonderful listen. I hope you enjoyed his tales on Russia, Scientology and North Korea. And I would like to take this moment once again to thank you all for listening.